0: Thanks Emily. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, Good morning. My name is uh, Ian. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm a pastor here at the King's Church and uh, really excited this morning to be continuing our Advent series and uh, grateful that you uh, chose to spend Sunday morning with us. Uh, If you're in Kingdom Kids Classroom 2, you guys can head to the door and meet Mr. Ricky there. I hope you guys have a good time back there in the classroom today. Uh, I know Pastor Ryan's a perfectionist, but you guys sound great. Thanks brother. We appreciate you. Uh, well, if you're joining us this morning for uh, the first time, we're in the middle of an Advent series that we've entitled The uh, Long-Expected King. And what we're doing in this series is we're trying to step into the shoes of God's people who waited uh, for thousands of years for this promised king, this promised Messiah to come. And so we're taking a look at some Old Testament promises that help stir up our affections and prepare our hearts for the Christmas season to remember the fact that our king has come, that Jesus uh, has been born that he has come to set all things right and today we're going to kind of work into the tension of the current situation that we find ourselves in and so up top this morning is an introduction uh, i just want you to think about the idea of location for a moment Uh, If you've ever bought a home or worked with a real estate agent, I know we have some of them around here, you know how important location is in the process, right? What's the old adage, location, 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 right? That's what determines probably more than anything else the value of your house, how much you're going to pay, and so on and so forth. And so uh, location is important in that way, but location is not just about real estate, right? Locations fundamentally shape us and are instrumental in forming our identities as persons, And so uh, the location of your childhood, for example, uh, the location that you attended or are attending school right now, uh, the places where you like to spend most of your time, right? All of those locations impact who we are as persons. And location's not just physical, there's also a temporal reality to that. So for example, I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to do this. If you grew up in like a childhood home and then you moved away and then you had the chance to go back and visit, anybody ever done that before? Uh, I know the thing that always strikes me is how different it feels. Like, there's that nostalgic feeling of like, oh, yeah, that's where I used to play. But you know what feels different every time I've done that? It feels so small. Anybody have that experience? Well, what's what's changed there? The location hasn't changed. What's changed is you, right? You've grown up. You've gotten bigger. And so that big playroom or the big yard now uh, looks not so big, right? And so location is both space and time. And so what we're going to see in this passage this morning is an ancient promise regarding location. First and foremost, it's an ancient promise regarding the birthplace of the long-promised king in Bethlehem, as we'll see. So this theme of physical location will be important here, but maybe even more important than physical location, there's a temporal location that we must find ourselves in and that we're forced to deal with in this passage. See, there's going to be some tension in the text that Emily just read for us about the reign and rule of this promised king, some of the statements seem to be things that have already happened. Some things are maybe happening right now, and some things are definitely happening in the future. And so the goal this morning is we need to figure our own temporal location out, because as we celebrate Advent, we're always reminded that we live between two Advents, that Christ has come But he has promised to come again and trying to inhabit and locate ourselves right smack dab in the middle of that is so important for our lives I've been reading an excellent book. Uh, It's called advent the once and future coming of jesus christ by uh, Fleming rutledge. I just want to read this quote from her I think it really captures the heart behind this morning and then we'll pray and jump in Here's what she says She says in a very real sense The christian community lives in advent all the time It can well be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, I love this phrase, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, and pain that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And I love how she ends this. Look at this. She says, in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. So this morning, our goal is to work through that Advent tension together as the family of God and figure out how we as the church are to live our lives as we do so. So let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for this season of Advent, a season of waiting, a season of preparation, a season where we take stock of the world around us. And Lord, we know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, that there are things that happen in our lives and in our community and in our world around us uh, that are simply evil, that are simply wrong. And so we thank you that Advent gives us a chance to reflect on your coming. Jesus, that you are coming to set all things right. You have already done so. You've promised to do so again. As we live in the tension of that, help us to find our location. Help us to know specifically what you've called us to do. May this text this morning guide us and inform us towards this end. Lord, your word says that you gather up the outcast, that you heal those who are broken, and that you love those who are wandering. So, Lord, may you do that this morning. May our time in your word be beneficial for us as we submit ourselves to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the main idea we're shooting for this morning is this, that Jesus is the promised king whose peaceful reign is ancient, present, and future. That Jesus is the promised king whose peaceful reign is ancient, present, and future. We're going to see that over two points. We're going to see the promised ancient king in the first two verses and then the already not yet kingdom in the last three. So let's begin by looking at that promised ancient king. Now, as we turn our attention to Micah, I don't assume that any of you are like Micah scholars in the room. Like, I need to know where I'm at in this book. So let's take a moment to set the context here. Uh, Micah, his prophetic ministry ran somewhere between the 8th and the 7th century BC, uh, which we put that in context, by the way, this is like 700 years before the birth of Christ. It's pretty incredible. Uh, at the time, the Assyrians were the major superpower and the, the primary enemy of the people of Israel at this time. And so Micah is this prophetic book. It's a collection of sayings that primarily warns of judgment. Because what's happened is over and over again, the people of Israel have continually neglected their covenant relationship with the Lord. In this specific passage this morning, though, we're not going to look at a message of judgment. Instead, we're going to see a message of hope that finds itself right here in the middle of this letter. So in chapter 4, Micah begins addressing Jerusalem, also known as Zion throughout the Old Testament. And he continues addressing that city here in chapter 5. Look at verse 1 with me again. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, kind of an odd phrase there, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Uh, What that means is is this would have been a a call to prepare for warfare. See, the picture before in chapter 4 is of the surrounding nations, the enemies are closing in on Jerusalem. And so the call here is to gather yourself up into troops in order to defend against this coming siege that is impending and could happen at any time. But Micah then moves on to describe this judge of Israel, Probably the king of israel And what's happening here is the enemy is not only about to break into the walls of jerusalem But their king their judge their leader is being humiliated Right this phrase to strike the judge of israel on the cheek Like that's equivalent to a slap today. Like when you slap somebody in the face don't do that But when when you see it happen, right? It's not really the pain that's inflicted although it does hurt a little bit. It's the humiliation factor right? If you see somebody slap somebody else, you know, something's went down that person's trying to humiliate them. Well, in the same way, imagine your king, the leader of your nation, publicly being humiliated by the enemy. That's the scene that is set here. Now, Micah's likely prophesying about an event in the future. The thing that we know from history that most fits this is not actually the Assyrians, but the Babylonians, the next major enemy of the people of Israel. When they conquer that city in 586 BC and they completely humiliate King Zedekiah in front of his family and his nation hears about it. Now what is being prophesied here ought to humble the people of Israel. Micah is warning of a future judgment that is to come. It hasn't happened yet. How Israel should respond to this is with humility, with repentance, by acknowledging that something is off in what we're doing. Because this is a bleak picture. We're left with a weak and humiliated king ruling over a city on the brink of destruction that's about to be under siege. The downfall is inevitable. They must turn to the Lord for help, but we know what happens in the story. They continually don't do that. We know how the story goes over and over again. God sends prophets like Micah A whole section of the Old Testament records these, to be his mouthpiece, to warn of judgment that is to come if people continue to forsake the Lord and his law and his covenants, but they continually turn to their own way. They make alliances with the enemy. They worship and serve false gods that they have created for themselves. They ignore the warnings. The good news this morning is that this text doesn't stop in verse 1. Verse 2 comes, and verse 2 comes as a sharp contrast to what's seen in verse 1. Because what verse 2 tells us is that God will not leave his people in despair. Despite the fact that they have turned away, despite the fact they are unworthy, God will not leave them alone. And by the way, that is Advent. That is what we are celebrating, that God will not leave us alone. He has come. He has come to deal with with the sin and the brokenness in this world and all that has gone wrong. Though we've done the very same thing the Israelites have done, he is on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost like you and me. So let's look at this glorious promise in verse 2. Quoting directly from the Lord here, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which is the worst word to pronounce out loud together. Should we all do it together? Ephrathah. There it is. So many THs. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Talk about a contrast. Verse 1, weak, humiliated king, slapped across the face. Verse 2, there's a ruler who is coming. There's a ruler who will set all things right. And the way this ruler is described is very interesting. There's at least three things we learn here. Uh, Number one, let's look at them in order. This ruler will be born in Bethlehem. Now, the Lord provides with great specificity here of the exact location that this ruler will be born. Now, remember, this is some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And that word that we all love, Ephrathah, is probably a name of a district within Judah where Bethlehem is located. Now, I don't know what your hometown was known for. Some of you might be here from Lakeland, so we know those. I'm from a very small town called Alma, Michigan. A uh, town of 9,000 people, like the center of the hub of activity was the 7-Eleven we hung out every day after school, which sadly was like boarded up this year. I saw a photo, a photo from my old friend. Uh, Alma was known most famously for its, quote, world-renowned Highland Festival, uh, which celebrated Scottish, Scottish heritage and culture. Uh, the mascot of the college there was the Scots. There was this big Scottish theme. Uh, the highlight for me as a kid is my dad was the city manager, so he had to don the Scottish garb for the parade every year. And if you know what Scottish garb is, he was wearing a skirt called a kilt. Um, Quality stuff. But that was my hometown. Very small, uh, not known for a lot. And in the same way, Bethlehem here is very small. It was not famous. I mean, the Lord here says that it's too little to be among the clans of Judah. Like, if you know your town is small when the Lord himself is calling it small, right? He says, yeah, you're a little too small to be among the clans of Judah, but... There's something incredible that's going on here in Bethlehem. It's situated about five miles south, southwest of Jerusalem, completely overshadowed by the city. Uh, No offense to our Mulberry people. It's sort of like Mulberry to Lakeland. Like that's sort of the size comparison here. We love you, Andersons. It's okay. Um, That's sort of the idea. Small, obscure, fairly insignificant town. Now, Bethlehem was known for one thing in the Old Testament. And we'll give it this. It's a significant thing. It was the hometown of King David. It was the hometown of king david and the history of israel shows over and over again The failure of the kings who come from jerusalem and the success of the one king who came from bethlehem Now we have to define success carefully because david had all sorts of issues too But the lord looks upon david in spite of his just jacked upness if we can call it that and says he's a man after my heart That he sinned and he sinned mightily, but he repented Right? He came back, he sought me when he sinned and needed help. He needed a little help getting there, but he eventually does that. This prophecy right here is referenced in the Christmas story. It's referenced in Matthew chapter two. The wise men, they go to Herod. Hey, this king has been born, where is he? They consult the chief priests and the scribes and they say, Bethlehem is where the promise is from. And you could probably imagine their response. Bethlehem, where, where is that, right? What do you mean, Bethlehem? Bethlehem, Ephrathah, where where is it going on there? There's there's a gap in what their understanding of significance is. Now let's let's pause here for a minute. Why would God do that? Why would God choose Bethlehem to be the birthplace, the location of this long-expected king? Why not Jerusalem? Why not another royal city like Rome in the time of the New Testament? Why some place so seemingly obscure? Well, we know that God does not operate in randomness, right? This, like all things from the Lord, is intentional. The fact that the Messiah, Jesus, is born in this small town of Bethlehem is actually the perfect introduction to his life and his ministry. It makes perfect sense when we zoom out and look at it. Jesus' entire life would be marked by humility. As the Gospel of Mark says, the Son of Man, referencing that prophecy in Daniel 7 himself, I came not to... Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many See, jesus didn't come riding in on a horse or a chariot into jerusalem demanding that all follow him and get in line Otherwise, they're going to suffer the consequences. No, he's born in the tiny town of bethlehem In a lowly way, right? We know how the story goes in the new testament. It's not a a pretty birth scene We're in a stable and he lives a life that embodies this idea of humility. Now we'll come back and draw some application in a moment, but first thing we see, he will be born in this little insignificant town of Bethlehem. Secondly, he will serve God faithfully. Micah says, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Unlike the failures of so many of the kings who came before, this ruler would serve for the Lord the Lord says, this ruler is for me. He would faithfully execute the plans of the Lord. All the other kings should have been doing this, but failed over and over again to do so. Now this ruler will rule for the Lord in faithfulness. And Micah's writing here at the time of a divided kingdom. You have Israel and you have Judah. The people of, of God's people of Israel are divided. And it says that he will unite them. He will bring unity and healing where there was disunity and division. So this ruler will be born in Bethlehem. He will serve the Lord faithfully. And then third, very intriguingly, he is from what the text here says, old, from ancient days. See, this is not just another king in a long line of kings. Now, this king is from old. This phrase could be a reference to a previous time in history, as it is sometimes used in the Old Testament. But the obvious question we ought to ask here. Is how can someone who is being born also be referenced as existing previously in history? Do we see the issue here? Right, this doesn't make any sense on the surface. Micah is saying this king will be born, yet he has already existed prior to this birth. Well, there's a big clue here. When this word for ancient in the Hebrew is used in reference to God himself, it now changes from old to often everlasting, forever always or for all time. As one commentator hopefully summarizes, this ruler was not a recent creation. For even though he would be born in Bethlehem, he had existed from eternity. That can be its only meaning here if the ruler is none other than the son of God, the Messiah. My favorite Advent hymn from Charles Wesley has this line. It says, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring how many people are born a child and yet a king that 's what Be- that 's what this prophecy about Bethlehem is saying, and this gets to the heart of christmas doesn 't it? This is the doctrine of the incarnation, literally means infleshment that God took on flesh, that he himself came, he entered this broken world, he was born in this little insignificant town the infinite became infant the divine became a human but strikingly he comes not in strength but in the divine plan of god he comes in weakness he's born as a baby he's born in a small meager town to a poor family so we ought to pause for a moment and ask what does all of that mean for us today I mean, this was thousands of years ago. How might we appropriately respond and apply what we see here of this promised king? How do we locate ourselves as we look at the implications of the location of the birthplace of Christ? I don't think it's a crazy application this morning. You can probably guess it. If our savior is marked by a life of lowliness and humility, what does that mean for us who are following the savior? You know the answer we ought to be marked by humility We ought to be marked by the same attitude that we see here from king jesus I love what charles spurgeon says about this this verse. He says this christ Is always born in bethlehem among the little ones Big hearts never get christ inside of them Christ lives not in great hearts But in little ones Mighty and proud spirits never have jesus christ for he comes in at low doors, but he will not come in at high ones He who has a broken heart and a low spirit shall have the savior But none else I love that phrase big hearts never get christ inside of them You see the specific location of the birthplace of jesus ought to cause us to immediately check our pride So how do we do this? How do we pursue the little hearts that Spurgeon's advocating that we have here? I think it begins by asking ourselves some questions and also getting some help from those who know us best. Because I know one thing about pride is that we typically are blinded to it. But as you wrestle in your own heart, as you ask people around you, I think we need to, to be confronted with where we have a mighty and proud spirit. Where are we boasting in something That is actually a good gift from the lord and not something that is our own Where are we continuing to make it all about us? Don't we have a real bent to do that? How are we making it all about us? Where do you feel tempted to make sure people know something about you? Or where do you feel tempted just stretch the truth a little bit to paint yourself in a positive light? There's something going on there right? There's something deep in the triggers of your soul and your heart that is responding in that way. And the warning here in this particular season is that pride will cause us to miss Christmas. Pride will cause us to miss Christmas. It will rob us of the joy of celebrating the birth of Christ. Because here's the thing we're confronted with. The humility of Christ doesn't just stop in Bethlehem, right? It's a fitting location for him to begin his life and his earthly ministry. But his whole life is marked by this lowliness. The prophets, as we'll sing later today, call him a man of sorrows. Right? He lives a lowly, nomadic life that ends in the most humble posture we could possibly imagine in this time period, as he is crucified on a Roman cross outside the gates of Jerusalem as an outsider and, according to Jewish law, as someone who is cursed by God. You see what christmas does christmas forces us to lift our eyes from the cradle to the cross It forces us to look from the cradle to the cross because the cross is our only hope to be set right with god Jesus came at christmas to give his life away for an undeserving people Which means that if this gospel is true We can lay down our desire to constantly Prove ourselves You know why? The one who knows everything about you, not just what you do, but what you think and the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. He knows all of that about you, and he still sent a son. He still came. And so this constant desire to prove ourselves is laid down at the cross because we have the approval of the one who knows all, fully known and fully loved. But we don't get to experience that unless we humbly go from the cradle to the cross unless we recognize our desperate need for that moment to take place, to be reconciled with God, our Father. Tim Keller says this, there's never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself can save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a moral and good life To accept the true christmas gift. You have to admit you're a sinner You need to be saved by grace. You need to give up control of your life Listen here at the king's church. You've got no one to impress You've got no one to impress Every single person in this room including me is a work in progress and guess what? we are always going to be a work in progress until the Lord returns. And so this morning, if you're feeling some kind of pressure to act like things are okay, to not be honest when you need help, right, whatever's stirring up within you, know that you have the freedom here to be honest, to be humble, to ask for help when you need it. Because that puts us in such a better posture to grasp the fullness of Christmas. And so I pray that would be the case for you and for all of us here in this room. So that is our long-promised king. Let's take a look now at this already-not-yet kingdom. As Micah continues here, he's gonna continue to describe the reign of this king, this Messiah, this long-promised one. But as I mentioned in the introduction, the timing and the exact order of events here is really difficult to track. Some of these are past realities, some are present, some are future. And this tension is described as the already and not yet, of the Christian life. Maybe an analogy will help us here. Uh, it's sort of like the gap between completing all of your coursework and graduation. I know we just had college graduation. Maybe some of you in this room can really apply what's going on here. Uh, the gap of time between when you've already completed those required courses, right? You finished the final exams, you paid off whatever outstanding fees you had, and then that sweet, sweet feeling of just being done, right? Right? But, what often happens is there's a little gap. There's a little gap of time between when the coursework is done, the final exams are wrapped up, everything is totally totally contained within the degree there, but now you're waiting for graduation to occur. You're waiting to walk across the stage to be handed the diploma and to officially graduate. If you're working on a PhD, sometimes that completion of graduation is months apart. So in that time between you've already completed the degree but you have not yet received the diploma. That's sort of the Christian life, if we zoom that out large scale. Right? Christ has already come. He's already laid down his life at the cross. He's already been raised to conquer sin, death, and evil once and for all, but we're in a period of waiting. We're in a period of waiting for the fullness of that to truly set in and to rush into this broken world. And so what we're going to try to do in these verses is locate ourselves within that tension of the already and the not yet. Let's so look at verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So the first thing that the Lord does after the promise of the Messiah is give an indication that he's actually going to give his people up. Now, that's a hard saying, isn't it? That God would give his people up, but don't forget the context right? God's going to give his people up in the Babylonian exile. They're going to be carried away to a foreign country that is not the promised land that they have been given from God. They're going to be carried away. God's going to give them up, but he always preserves a a, a remnant of people within those whom he gives up, right? We see in Romans one that God gave up humanity to our desires, but the promise here quickly comes. Yes, there's a giving up, but When she who is in labor gives birth, I don't think this is a reference to Mary. That'd be pretty cool. I think this is symbolic for Jerusalem. Remember, he calls Jerusalem the daughter of troops. There's this language of special care for Jerusalem. When this ruler comes forth, when this person is born who has long promised things will change, the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. This is speaking of the saving work of Jesus Christ. That when he comes, those who are his his will be brought back into the family of God, into the fold. Now, this is already happening, right? In the past, it's happening right now as the Lord continues to save and to draw those in his kindness to himself. And it will happen most profoundly in the future. But as we think about the Lord, this king, this Messiah causing those to return to himself, we're given three aspects of his rule here. We're given the nature of his rule, the extent of his rule, and the results of his rule. Begin with the nature. Look at verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of God, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The idea here of taking his stand is one of inauguration. The king is appointed. He's set into his place. But this is not like every other king, right, who in that day would be very harsh. Would be very militaristic. No, no, this king will reign as a shepherd as a shepherd Uh, This is fitting by the way for the king who'd be born in bethlehem to follow king david who was a shepherd Right now shepherds play a very important role in the biblical story In fact at christmas time they play a massive role right plug for christmas eve service Come on back and hear about the shepherds then Uh, But if you think about a shepherd they have to be tough and tender, right? So they have to be tough like leading a flock of sheep is not exactly a democracy, right? Like the shepherd doesn't stand before and take votes about where they're going to go. No, no, the shepherd has to lead, right? He's got to be tough. He's got to take those sheep where they need to go. The shepherd risks his own life for the good of the flock, right? He protects them from thieves or from wild animals. If one goes astray, the shepherd in toughness goes after it. But shepherds aren't just tough. They have to be tender as well. They would name Each of their sheep individually they would create specialized calls for them So even if there's a hundred sheep in a pen a special call and that one sheep knows the shepherd's voice That one sheep can respond Immediately shepherds have to know the needs of their sheep and lead them to green pastures So jesus comes on the scene in john 10 and he says I am The good shepherd Right and he does both of these things perfectly. Jesus is in charge He's king yet he does so protecting and caring for the flock. His humble beginnings and his life marked with servitude speaks to this reality, but Jesus is also the one who conquered sin and death once and for all. He is tender and he is tough. He is uniquely both the good shepherd and the lamb of God whose death takes away the sins of the world. He will stand and not rule with a heavy hand over his people. He will stand and shepherd us. That's God's posture towards us, a shepherd towards the flock. Secondly, the extent of his rule is seen in the second half of verse four there. It says, they shall dwell secure for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Again, we see this tension between the already and the not yet. Jesus is king right now. Let's not get it twisted. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God the Father, but one day his reign over the earth will be seen by all people. It's pretty striking that the first Christmas, only seen by a very small group of people, a very odd group of people, by the way, who recognize, hey, this king that was prophesied was born. That's the first Christmas. You know what happens at the second advent? All people are going to see. His rule and his reign And his kingdom that he is bringing will be experienced to the ends of the earth. I love that this is not just over the nation of Israel, by the way. This phrase here, that he will rule to the ends of the earth, can also mean over every country, over every nation. And this is the vision we find at the end of the scriptures. Creation itself is being wound up like a clock that you have to wind up, and it's waiting for this moment to happen when Christ returns and he sets all things right. Psalm 96 talks about the seas and the fields and the trees of the forest shouting for joy at the return of the king, which is symbolic language that might be more real than we even recognize. That creation is groaning. It is waiting for the day for its king to return, for all that is broken to be set right. And therefore we long for this day. We look forward to it. And we should seek to reflect this as people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Excuse me. We pursue all nations, right? We match God's heart for the world and our outreach of the gospel as we declare and we display the good news of Jesus to all people. We long for the day he comes back. But lastly, as we close here, the results of his rule. What will happen to the people he is leading? Well, it says here that his people will dwell secure, and then look at verse 5, and he shall be their peace. And he shall be their peace. This word peace can be expressed as living without danger or any fear whatsoever. See, God's people will dwell in complete security without any threat of danger, oppression, warfare, the sin that clings so close. All these things that bring a disruption of peace in our lives will be gone under the reign and rule of this long-promised king. Now, we know acutely in our lives that this is not yet experienced fully, right? We don't have this is a future orientation. We don't have this kind of peace right now But it does beg the question. Where are you at this christmas season with this concept of peace? Like are you at peace this advent season? And I don't mean a surface level peace But I mean are you truly at rest in your soul? Do you have a settled confidence before the lord or is there a wrestling that is going on there because I know That the Christmas season, though we try to make it cheery and happy and we sing songs like joy to the world and peace on earth, right? Are you really feeling this? Because I know Christmas can draw out really difficult things, right? So much of this season actually pulls us away from peace, the hustle and bustle of the consumerism that we practice and participate in, the annual reminder of a seat that is missing at the family table, somebodys not here that's supposed to be here. Right, reflecting on a year that was full of disappointments and just didn't go as you wanted. A restlessness and uncertainty about what the new year might hold. Right, we might even feel the pressure to act like everything is okay when we know it's not. Right, I don't know about you, but that's so often is my experience in the Christmas season. It's hard. There's something that's off here. So how can we possibly have a peace that transcends all of this. Is that even possible? Well, look closely at what Micah says here. Where is this peace found? Notice he doesn't say it's found in better circumstances. right? So often in our lives, we look to stake our hope, and if just you fill in the blank was different, then everything would be okay. If just I had the better job, if just my family would listen to me, right? if my kids would just listen and go to bed when I tell them to go to bed, right? if I would just have a little bit more money, whatever that blank is for you, don't we just so quickly in our minds move there and we convince ourselves better circumstances will give us this peace we're looking for. That is not what Micah says. What does Micah say? He shall be their peace. Right? The peace is rooted in Jesus himself. Now I want to say this very carefully. Faith in the future does not erase our pain in the present. Faith in the future does not erase our pain in the present. This world is not the way it's supposed to be, and we feel that every day. And this seems to be accented this time of year if we're taking an honest look at things. But the season of Advent reminds us of this, that the people of Israel waited and waited for what seemed like too long for this promised king to come. And don't we live in that same tension right now? Doesn't it seem like we're waiting too long for this promised king to come? But the beauty of locating ourselves between the two advents is that we actually can begin to have a peace right now. This is available to us as God's people right here in this moment. It's not gonna fix all of your circumstances, but it's a peace that can begin to transcend them. It's a peace that can begin to work over and above our disappointments It can be a peace that works over and above our heartbreaks and our longings. I love what Hebrews 4 says. Not a traditional Christmas passage, but this captures the heart of Christmas to me. The author here says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus, as our great high, high priest, can sympathize with our weaknesses precisely because he was born, precisely because Christmas happened. And notice he sympathizes specifically with the hardships in our life. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. We can actually turn to him with the hard things that we wrestle with because the author here says his throne, which by the way, 98% of the time in the scriptures, we talk about the throne of God. It's a throne of judgment. It's a judgment seat. But Hebrews tells us it's a throne of mercy. It's a throne of grace where we find help in time of need. Now that means swallowing our pride. That means approaching that throne with confidence to say, Lord, I'm in desperate need of your help. But as we go there in confidence, we receive grace. We receive mercy to help in time of need. And you know what all of that leads to? Peace. That leads to a peace that we have a God who cares. We have a God who cares so much he got involved in the messiness of this world so that we might dwell secure, so that we might not have a fear of what is to come. Church, our location is a people between two advents. As we inhabit and live in this space, we are called to humility and peace, and both of these are only truly available in Jesus Christ, our long-expected king who is from ancient who is ruling in the present and has promised to come again. So this morning, as we close, where do we need to check our pride? Where do we need to be honest with the Lord and honest with others that we just need help, that we're stuck? Where are we trying to find a peace outside of Jesus in something that will not help us to dwell secure? Where in God's kindness are we being drawn to repentance in these areas? to turn away from pursuing these things, and turn back to the Lord. Listen, church, as we locate ourselves here, we find who we were truly meant to be, and we live as we are called to live in God's kingdom, as those who dwell secure under the reign of our long-expected King Jesus. May that be so in us this morning. Let's pray. Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com.